Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. Yes, I'm Scott Dalwood. I'm Paul Fricker. And I'm Max Anderson. And this week we are talking to Malcolm Craig of Contested Ground Studios. Hello, Malcolm. Hello, all. How are you doing? For those who haven't heard of Malcolm before, Ma- Malcolm is the uh, the um, the brain behind Contested Ground Studio and the author of many fine games. Um, do, you, do you want to uh, just run through what games you've you've designed, Malk? Uh Yeah, well, I mean, pretty much. You say many. I think you do me too much of a, <laughs> an honour there, Scott. Uh, yeah, A State was my the first one that got published, then then Cold City, and then Hot War, which we were talking about uh, in your last episode. Uh, yes. Which is really fascinating to hear about because I've not thought about uh, about the game for quite a while. So it was fascinating to hear the kind of perspective on it. Uh, Hot War still seems to be getting quite a lot of love at UK conventions, even though it, you know it's, it's been out for a few years. It it hasn't lost its luster. Uh, that's, that's quite nice to hear, considering I kind of do absolutely nothing to support it these days. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Contest the Grand Studios and how it all started. Uh, it started out uh, myself and the the talented half of Contest the Grand Studios, Paul Bourne, who now does all the kind of graphic design work and all that kind of thing for uh, for Cubicle Seven. Plug plug. Uh, I was lucky enough to know Paul from from way back when he uh, a mutual friend who was in a band, and then I got to know Paul quite well. And I had this idea to, to do this game, which became A-State, and Paul said, well, we're going to do it on a website. I'll do some pictures for you, because he was starting to experiment with kind of like digital artwork and all that kind of thing. And things just kind of evolved from there, really. It was just the just the two of us with the, I mean, the very kind support of uh, many friends. John Wilson, in particular, was the guy who kind of uh, really supported us to get started. Gregor Hutton, uh, all that kind of thing. And it just everything kind of like snowballed and we were kind of just at the start of when sort of small press publishing and gaming was starting to become uh, more of an accepted kind of kind of thing. This was back 2003 uh, when A-State came out. So we can like almost kind of hit the start of when that was kind of like, you know, feeding over from being very small in the, in the kind of the late 90s into the early 2000s to becoming much more of a bigger accepted thing with creator ownership and self-publication and all that kind of thing. It certainly didn't look like a small press game, though, um, Malcolm. I mean, the production of A State was very high. It was kind of, I think it was hardback and uh, really pretty book. That was that was our insane, not knowing what we were doing uh, <laughs> aspect of it. Uh, Paul, I mean, Paul had an amazing dedication to making the absolute best-looking product he possibly could. I mean, Paul doesn't settle for ah, that'll do. It's always like, right, this has got to look the absolute best it can. And a lot of that came from Paul. But we really didn't, we didn't then actually have a clue what we were doing. It was an assumption that if you wanted to make a success of a game, you had to go with a, a big printer, print a one of at least a thousand copies, do it in hardback, make it a big book, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And 
it was a really steep learning curve and a great learning process to go through because that enabled us to do things a lot differently after kind of like get you know becoming more associated with kind of certain parts of the kind of small press creator owned kind of part of gaming uh it was it was really good it enabled us to go on and gain from that experience and and help others out actually uh, as we went along yeah because of course uh, you were one of the founder members of uh, the collective endeavor weren't you yeah, that all started a, a night with uh, several bottles of Jim Beam uh, in a hotel room in Indianapolis at Gen Con, and it was it was basically the UK games contingent uh, was were there. There was me, Gregor Hutton, Matt Machel, who did Covenant, uh, Andy Kenrick, I think, was there, who did Dead of Night, uh, Ian McAllister, who did Mob Justice, uh, Joe Prince, who did Contenders, and all sorts of other great games. So loads of really talented people and we're sitting around drinking in this hotel room and it was just like you know wouldn't it be a great idea if you know they have stuff over here where everyone's collectively minded and all this kind of thing and oh, why don't we do that back in the UK and drunkenly we said that's a brilliant plan let's do it when we get back and again you know one of us remembered through the drunken haze we'd agreed to do this and you know the collective endeavor came out of it with an aim to try and you know a big aim was to encourage people to say look you don't have to be White Wolf, you don't have to be, you know, Pinnacle or, or whoever. I struggle to remember the names of games companies these days. You can do this stuff yourself, but don't lose your shirt. Don't spend more than you have to. You can do it through channels that aren't printing a thousand copies of a giant hardback and nearly losing your shirt because the distribution company you're with, the guy who runs it, runs off to Nevada with all the money or whatever it is, you know, happens. Uh, so it was an aim to avoid people making the mistakes that, that we made, uh, more specifically I made, because uh, Paul didn't really have anything to do with kind of like the games, and he didn't know anything about gaming, and so most of the fault with Contesting Brown Studios lies with me. Um, but I mean, that, that all started out around the same time as the kind of self-publishing revolution uh, began in gaming, when you know the technology and the uh, the distribution mechanisms and the companies came into place to actually allow small press games to to flourish. Oh, uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean. You, uh, do, do you think that there was kind of a, a renaissance of, of British gaming around that time, uh, um, which came out of this? I think that there was a, there was something of a renaissance in. I hesitate to use that term. Something of a renaissance in gaming in general. I thought a lot of really great stuff came out of gaming at that time, particularly with with designers who were kind of freed of this idea that you had to do the big games company, big format kind of thing. And a lot of credit goes to kind of a number of the designers, particularly over in America. Now, there were a lot of other people who laid the groundwork and did stuff, doing really different things in the 80s and 90s and all like that. It's not to take any credit away from them, but the people who were a big influence on me were guys like Vincent Baker and, and Ron Edwards. You know, For all the flack that Ron gets and has got over the time, Ron was a, a hugely positive influence on the idea of creator-owned games design and publication. And he did, a, he did. He influenced a lot of people in a very positive way. I mean, I know like Ron is an opinionated man, and he sticks these opinions. But I've had many great discussions with with Ron, uh, especially face to face at Gen Con. And I think he did a lot, aside from the views he has on games and game design. He did a lot to really kickstart things, along with you know, Vincent, as I mentioned, Paul Sega, uh, who did My Life with Master, uh, Clinton Nixon. All these guys, uh, Matt Nixon as well, who did all these kind of early kind of first wave of, you know, the 
21st century creator-owned and, and published games. So mm. in, in term, British terms, sorry, I'm rambling on a little bit here. In, in British terms, it was nice to see that in, in our own small way, the collective endeavour helped to make that a thing in the UK. We are not solely responsible for it. We would never take that credit because people were influenced from other avenues. But it's nice to see we played a small part in a wider sense that, yeah, I can, I can write something, I can publish it, I can get people together to, we can cooperate and engage in a kind of mutual kind of exchange of writing and art and ideas and all these kind of things and have something productive and worthwhile come out of it and not lose vast amounts of money trying to publish, you know, publish a game that you might sell a few hundred copies, but you've got 2,000 copies sitting in your garage mouldering away. So I think we played a, it's a small part in that. I wouldn't like to take too much credit and certainly not any significant credit personally for that. Collective is everything. You know, it was it was very much a group of people uh, working hard together. Well, it was a very encouraging presence, and I, I, I think you know, even though the collective endeavour you know seems to have largely wound down these days, um, I, I think um, you know, it, there's there's certainly been an influence there because you know, for example, if I go down to the London Indie Games Meetup uh, nowadays, um, it seems like just about everyone there is developing a game, and you know, a fair number of them are self-publishing. You know, so some some of them you know putting stuff free out online, some are going with the publishing model that you know the the Collective Endeavour members did of putting out small digest-sized books, but you know it, it suddenly seems to have become you know ubiquitous in the community. I think that's a, and it's a very encouraging thing. Is your people you know it gets the shackles off. It's not just about the big companies. You put a PDF. I mean this is I mean you talked earlier about it's changes in technology as well as a kind of cultural shift. It's changes in technology have helped with that print on demand, digital printing. Easy availability of PDFs and eBooks and the ability to sell and exchange those uh, very easily. Uh, it's a kind of conglomeration of all these developments that were happening has made it so much easier to have this, you know, exchange of your kind of your ideas and, and all these kind of things. It's no longer kind of someone putting a, a little kind of advert in the back of a 1987 copy of White Dwarf, saying mm -hmm. I have written my own game and printed it out on a banda copier. Copies available for £5.60, postage and packaging, 20p, all that kind of thing. Uh, oh, yes. You're now able to do that much more easily. Uh, yes. Even a few of the larger companies have started using the print-on-demand format now, so they don't have to worry about warehousing space. So it's technology that's been widely picked up across the market from top to bottom. Then. Yeah, and it's I mean, it's fascinating seeing that, that develop, because I think it's nice in a way that the, kind of the game, game side of things was almost an early adopter of the idea of really, really taking to heart the ideas of what you can do with digital print on demand. And it's interesting now working in academia is a lot of the kind of big academic publishers as well are coming round to this idea of, you know, Oxford University Press, Cambridge University Press, all these kind of many times when you order a book from them now, it's it's a print on demand book, digitally printed, mm. and it just gets sent straight out to you. So even these kind of giant international academic presses are doing that now so you know it's you know it's nice that kind of like in one sense gaming was actually kind of almost an early adopter uh, of the the potential of that technology yeah um and and you, you you adopted that didn't you fairly early on with um is that model used with cold city when you put that out yes yeah i mean i must admit i mean we were very heavily influenced by you know the way that the guys in the states were doing it as i said vincent you know, Clinton, Josh Newman, 
uh, Ben Lehman, all these guys uh, are doing that kind of stuff. And these, the potential of these much smaller, more kind of self-contained books uh, that were really nice to look at as well. And, you know, I mean, I went around Gen Con and, like, you know, hoovered up all this stuff and shamelessly ripped off so much stuff. You know, it's, uh, I think Tom Lehrer uh, sang back in the 1950s, you know, plagiarize, let no one else's work evade your eyes. Uh, exactly what I did. I mean, uh, anyway, I think what the one person I always should tip my hat to is for Cold Cities, for Tim Kleiner. And he did The Mountain Witch, you know, great game about samurai and betrayal and sacrifice and all these kind of things. And I played that and was like, oh, this is all about trust. Wow, that would be great for a sort of quasi-spy Cold War kind of game. And mm. mercilessly ripped off that idea for Cold City. Absolutely mercilessly. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I've seen this with your, your your mechanics designs in Cold City and, and Hot War. What you, I mean, you seem to have synthesized from a number of different sources, but you know, kind of bolted the bits together in ways that that, that work out very well and tweaked and fine tuned them over time and turned them into something really quite different. Well, I mean, I think I mean Cold City especially is is a kind of yeah this horrible grafted together Frankenstein's monster of uh, stuff that Ron did with Sorcerer, uh, stuff that Vincent did with Dogs in the Vineyard, uh, certainly stuff Tim did with the Mountain Witch, uh, stuff that Matt did with Dust Devils, which I still think is one of the greatest games people don't play enough. There's a, it's a game people should play more is Dust Devils. And Matt does not get enough credit as you know, one of these kind of formative designers in that year in the early 2000s of bringing out games that were really solid. Dust Devils is a fantastic game. But I kind of like took all these bits, and I think Cold City is almost an intermediary step. I think Hot War is mechanically a lot better. Yes. So the rough edges are kind of filed off. It, everything works well together. Cold City isn't bad, but it was part of a learning process, I think. And I think Hot War... Is, is better than Cold City in terms of the way it implements the mechanics. But it, it, was, it, it was nice that once you'd fine-tuned those mechanics, you then took them back and re-released Cold City with the, uh, with the lessons that you'd learned from Hot War, because yeah, the 1.1 the version of Cold City was much, much smoother uh, mm. because, because of precisely that process. Yeah, I think Paul was about to ask a question there as well. Oh, sir. Yeah, I was just going to ask about the um, development of your kind of games. So uh, with A-State, I'm not so familiar with A-State, I guess, I don't know if the listeners are, could you give us a kind of elevator pitch of what A-State is? God awful. <laughs> God awful. I I, it. It has its good points. It does have its good points. The mechanics are a pile of steaming horse manure. It's absolutely awful. It's this dire, generic, percentile-based twattery, to be quite honest. It's awful. The mechanics are rubbish. Uh, the setting, uh, there's bits of the setting I, I really like. The stuff in it, that I think, this, you know, this giant enclosed city. Urban spaces kind of fascinate me, which is where it comes from. And so this idea of this enclosed city that's suffering, all, you know, it's suffering kind of entropy. Everything's running down. And it's this kind of like mashed together of all sorts of different technologies. I mean, the entire thing is a giant MacGuffin really, in order to allow, facilitate adventures, so to speak. But there is stuff to recommend if I look back in it. Now, actually, I looked in preparation for this. For the first time in years, I looked at a copy of A-State. And some of it, I was like, my 
God, that is histrionic nonsense. What were you thinking about when you were writing that? It's like, you know, some of it is just terrible. Some bits are like, well, that's actually quite good. I should have done more with that. And some of it is just embarrassingly bad. <laughs> oh, but um, so, so um, what, what was, you, you talk about the city and it being a MacGuffin. I mean, what was the, the kind of driver for adventuring in, in a city, uh, a state rather? Well, I always had this idea. My big idea was it was about hope. So the player characters should have been involved in this horrible, horrible, oppressive, dark setting. They are doing something to make things better for people. Unfortunately, because I didn't know how to do it then, that was not facilitated by the way the game worked. The game worked just like any other game, but with things like saying, oh, the characters should be doing stuff to engender hope. Well, how do you do that? Uh, I don't know. Pet a dog, take a small child home and give them a sandwich, then find their mother. I don't know. Uh, so it had you know, very little in the way. The mechanics didn't support anything that the game was actually about, uh, which, was, which, was, which was problematic. But I didn't, you know, when I was writing it from about 2000 to 2003, I didn't know. I hadn't really played any mm. of the stuff like, like Dust Devils or you know, My Life with Master or Sorcerer or anything like that at that point. So I wasn't... A, you know, I had a sense that there was something that could be done, but I didn't know how to do it. There's, there's one thing I particularly love about the game when I played it, and that's the aspect of what was outside the city, that you had this mysterious effect that happened whenever you got so far outside of it. Um, I think from recalling there, maybe uh, from in one of the back of the books, there was a plan to do a supplement about that at one point, but for some reason never came about. Here's a question for you, if you can remember. What was outside? Because I've, I've been wanting to know that for years. <laughs> right, well, <laughs> all that stuff in the back of the first printing of the book was that kind of thing. Well, you have to have a huge lineup of supplements, otherwise people won't be interested anymore. So we had this massively ambitious, nonsensical thing. Oh, we'll do <laughs> Never happened. You know, <laughs> I still get the occasional emails going, oh, is such and such a supplement going to be coming out? I'm like, ah, no, sorry. Uh, that was kind of half-truths at best. What's outside? Actually, that was entirely... There were three explanations to that, actually, because the supplement that was going to take, that was going to kind of give the background, I like it there being not really an explanation. I like there being an open-ended thing that allows everyone to transplant their own meaning onto things. Uh, there were going to be three different explanations of why the city was the way it was. And I can only remember two of them. I'm sure I've got a document somewhere, or might have been lost through successive laptop changes over, over the years. One of them was a technological explanation that involved people getting vaporized by orbital particle beams when they tried to leave the city. In retrospect, that doesn't make a lot of sense, and I can't remember why that was the case. Uh, another what explanation was that, a kind of theological explanation, that there had been a war between God and anti-God. And for some reason, the city was involved in this. And again, I can't remember why. So anyone looking for a rational explanation of what was going on, I'm afraid in the kind of... 11 years since the game came out, I've kind of forgotten now. So people are entirely at liberty to make shit up as they see, you know, see fit. I'm, I'm really apologetic for that because I still get, as I said, I still get the occasional email saying, 
are you ever going to tell people? I'm like, oh, it's been made out to be this big thing, and it really wasn't as big a thing as I wanted, you know, wanted it to be, and all that kind of thing. So uh, there is no truth. Just make everything up. The truth is out there, and it's up to you what to make of it. So basically, just like life. Yeah, kind kind of. You can be some kind of David Duchovny kind of character, and you know, do all that kind of thing. <laughs> Well, the mate shit up is a mantra that Scott certainly lives by at the game tables. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so much more interesting just making shit up than kind of having a book that says, and this is the way it is. Mm-hmm. This is the way the kind of Cold City and Hot War went. Like, ah, there is no explanation. On you go, you know, DIY kind of thing. I quite like the approach. You know, it's, it's been copied in a few other places. Like, um, Delta Green uses it to um, explain who Stephen Owls is. is um, there's Edge of Midnight that presents different ideas to why the world is like it is. Um, what exactly is seven in Vampire the Requiem? There's, lo- there's lots of different examples. I think it's, it's good that so the keeper can say that oh, it could be this option, or they could even make it look out like option number one and actually sneak their own one in. And yeah, it's lots of lots of opportunity for smoke and mirrors. So I like that. Yeah, or, I mean, you could have it something like you know, everyone's explanation is true, and there's a kind of you're maybe kind of you're playing a game where there's a comment on individual perception, and you know how perception and reality are different and all that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I mean, I like this kind of just leaving things open and everything. Actually, there's a great game that's going to be coming out. One of the few games I've been keeping an eye on by uh, a friend of mine from New Zealand when I lived out there called Steve Hickey called Left Coast. And you can get a, a free kind of PDF copy of it. And you play characters who are science fiction and fantasy writers in California in the 1970s. And not only, and I can't remember if Steve has changed this, in the intervening time, but not only are you a character who is an author, but all the other people around the table, you are a character in one of their stories as well. Oh, you're both my. a real person and a fictional character at the same time. It, to play that, we played play tested it a couple of times at New Zealand. It's gone through many evolutions since then, but the basis of it of being a kind of about science fiction writers in this kind of Philip K. Dickian kind of mold in early 70s California is brilliant. And the most genius part of the game mechanics is that when you name your character, the character must have a random initial somewhere in their name. <laughs> nice. Uh, so my, my playtesting one was a guy called K. Joshua Fresnel who wrote these uh, John Norman-esque bombastic right-wing misogynist fantasy novel uh, and had a talking dog called Benito. Anyway, so there we go. <laughs> it, it does sound like Valis, the role-playing game. It pretty, yeah, it pretty much is. I mean, Steve was very heavily influenced by kind of like, you know, Dickian kind of stuff. Uh, and it's worth checking out. It's, mm. you know, I play test form. It's a really interesting game. Yeah, oh, cool. Can't, right can't, alley, yeah. yeah, same here. Can't wait to get my hands on that. Um, so um, we, we've kind of skirted around Cold City and Hot War a bit. Um, do, do, would, I mean, we, we discussed uh, Hot War in quite some depth in the uh, in the previous podcast, but we didn't go into Cold City that much. I mean, would, would, would you mind kind of introducing people to what Cold City is if they aren't familiar? Yeah, I mean, Cold City is essentially just a game of trust, betrayal, and hunting monsters in Berlin in 1950. I mean, that's pretty much it. You play, as you, as you talked about in the last uh, episode, you play characters are part of this kind of multinational outfit who are secretly hunting down the the remnants of Nazi weird technology experiments uh, during the war. And I mean, there's loads of conspiracy theories about kind of 
secret German technology during the war. I find myself both kind of fascinated by and repelled by conspiracy theory. On one hand, it's fascinating. On the other hand, it's so ludicrous, just you know, some of the, the lengths and contortions people will go to. Uh, but Cold City essentially draws upon a lot of the conspiracy theorizing about, uh, you know, German, you know, time travel experiments and UFO experiments and all these kind of things and draws upon that and weaves it into the real Berlin of 1950. Uh, before, you know, years before the wall is built, there's still a certain level of cooperation between the, the Soviets, the French, the Americans and the British. And... Part of that is this secret police organization, the Reserve, uh, Reserve Police Agency, which is modeled on the one uh, organization that actually existed all the way through the Cold War as a collaborative venture between all the, the four sides in Germany called the Berlin Air Safety Center, which huh. was a traffic control organization that was manned by the Soviets, the Americans, the French, and the British all the way through, uh, all the, way through the Cold War uh, to monitor air safety going in and out of Berlin. Uh, so it was modeled on that kind of idea, only a secretive version. But I think a big part of it was, it was about the Cold War, it was about my interest in the Cold War and spies and all that kind of thing. But there was a point point about it that, in many ways, the characters are kind of, they're very much anti-heroes and almost the bad guys in a certain way, because the monsters themselves, it's not intended to be these kind of faceless you know, oh, they're horrible, kind of like Waffen SS creations, you know, that kind of thing. They're victims as well. Yeah. They're victims of, you know, they're just as much victims as, you know, other people who suffered in real life. But these, these are fictional, you know, uh, representations of that. But they're just as much victims. And you're almost, these people are going around hunting down, you know, creatures and creations that, you know, didn't ever want to be the way they are. So uh, that was a rather long-winded kind of description. It's Berlin, it's 1950, you're hunting monsters, you're kind of like spies. Uh, everyone ends up shooting the Soviet guy for some reason. The <laughs> <laughs> German guy in the games that we play, yeah. <laughs> uh, and and this, this sort of led on to Hot War, uh, didn't it? I mean, Hot War is, is you know, at the very least the spiritual successor, if not the, you know, the actual kind of canon successor to the game. Hmm. I think it's, I mean, it's very much, I always intended it as a thematic sequel. You can take it as a direct sequel to Cold City, but also thematically it, it works. And uh, yeah, it, you know, it follows on from that and it you know, brings the timeline forward slightly uh, to the early 1960s, which are a fascinating period uh, within the Cold War. You have the, you have the Cuban Missile Crisis, you have the Berlin Crisis from 58 to about 62, and then you have the building of the wall, you have the nuclear threat between the Soviet Union and America and all that kind of thing. And in our world, the Cuban Missile Crisis was resolved and leads to, leads to detente and leads to a thawing of relations and all these kind of things. In the world of hot war, it doesn't. It goes badly wrong, as you said last night. And uh, miraculously, London isn't hit by multi-megaton nukes. There's a bit of a MacGuffin for you. Why? Why would it not? Why would London not be? Well, London is really badly damaged. It's based. London is meant to be like uh, uh, Grozny during the First Chechen War. Huh. It's meant to be in that kind of condition because there were ground battles and everything fought there. So it's still pretty ruined, but people still live there. Uh, like you know, you find in you know many cities that are subject to to the horrors of warfare, whether it's 
you know, Aleppo right now, Grozny during the Chechen War, Sarajevo during the Bosnian Wars, uh, all these kind of things. So it's meant to be that kind of environment. Uh, but following on from, yeah, following on from Cold City. Do stop me if I start rambling, because I do this quite a lot. I just go off on tangents. Well, can I ask you if, if so you did um, Berlin in the 50s, um, London in the, what is it, in the 60s. 60s. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you intend any any further ones, but if you were to pick a, another one sort of, you know, subsequent to that as a, as a, I mean, you're obviously very interested in setting it in cities. We've had A State was a city, Berlin was a city, London was a city. Um, is there another time in history, you know, more recent history and a place? I mean, maybe, I don't know, post 9-11 New York or something like that where you'd kind of pick for a good setting? Uh, well, I'm never, I, my intention is never say never, but I'm not planning on writing any more games. I'd actually go back in time, though. Ah, oh, right. I think one of the most fascinating cities that hasn't really been explored to any great extent in gaming is Istanbul uh, or Constantinople, as it is then. Uh, Istanbul from the end of World War One up until about 1923. Because Constantinople finds itself in the position that Berlin is in during the Cold War. It's divided among the victorious allies, and they exercise control over the city. Uh, and then in 23, obviously, the Turkish Republic is declared, and Ataturk and all that kind of thing. But it's a very fraught situation, uh, and there's all sorts of kind of stuff going on, tension between the allies. You have the Russian Revolution going on, you know, just across the water. So there's all sorts of political machinations. I think that would be a fascinating place to set, uh, to set a game. And you could almost do it like a sort of Berlin during the Cold War, but, but quite different and drawing in different themes and ideas. Either, either that or Bradford in the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> that may be a little bit too horrific for most modern audiences. But... <laughs> as long as it's not Dundee in the 80s. Oh, no, there's a thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, so some topics are just too dark for games. But, uh, speaking of which, I mean, it, the, the stuff that you write does tend to be very, very dark. Um, you know, it shows the worst aspects of human nature. It shows things falling apart. It shows the effects of both mundane human evils and, you know, in some cases, more exotic evils um, on, on, on the lives of ordinary people. I, what, what is it that keeps drawing you back to such dark topics? Probably because I'm a miserable bastard. <laughs> um, no, I, well, no, I'm a very cheerful person in real life as well, you know, Scott. Uh, oh. <laughs> having a tendency towards misanthropy. Um, <laughs> on a very fundamental level, I think it's more interesting to write about these things than kind of like you know sunshine and flowers and everyone's happy and all that kind of thing. It gives it's more scope for I think people to. I like to think that. Despite the fact that the games I've published have all been fairly dark-toned, at the core of them, what I like to think is that when people play characters in them, at least to a certain extent, the characters are doing something positive. Maybe not all the characters all the time, but there's a certain amount of trying to do something that makes a difference. Whether that, that was certainly a theme in A-State, to a certain extent in Cold City, a reasonable extent in in hot war uh, because I often find with with hot war people playing it their characters react to the excesses of the fictional government that exists oh, yeah. in hot war and it's and it's almost turned towards xenophobic fascism 
as opposed to that non-xenophobic fascism, which we're all so familiar with. <laughs> yes. Was a, you know, in the dictionary, under redundant, it says, see redundant. <laughs> uh, so I like to think that people kind of, you know, play characters that can, that can make a difference. I mean, I'm sure that isn't always the case, but that's a kind of a core of it. But I think darkness is much more interesting in terms of providing a backdrop uh, because that gives such a, a, a starker counterpoint to the light that you can, you, you can bring. So if you're interested in those kind of darker kind of themes, what were the kind of games that you played um, prior to writing your own games? Um, a, lot, a lot of Call of Cthulhu, a lot of Twilight 2000, sometimes against my will, and a lot of cyberpunk in both the 2013 and 2020 versions, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But those three are kind of the ones that really stick in my mind. So, uh, yeah, what what is it that you kind of took out of those games? I, you know, they, uh, if those were your main kind of gaming uh, experiences, th those I, I guess must have been your your main kind of gaming influences, starting out at least. So, mm. you know, what is it you took out of those games? Um, Cthulhu, I think, directly informed my sense of later developing sense of what a game shouldn't be and what mechanics shouldn't do and Twilight 2000 is uh, Twilight 2000 is a more interesting one I think because Hot War is the re direct reaction to stuff like Twilight 2000 and a lot of the post-apocalyptic games that existed in the 80s and 90s you know Twilight 2000 the god-awful price of freedom you know stuff like that post-World War 3 kind of stuff that were really you know, not wishing to insult any of the designers of those games who may still be out there, but they weren't very good, and they were a bit right-wing. In fact, some of them were really right-wing. Just a tad. Uh, yeah, just a tad. Like, Twilight 2000, it's a bit of a gun fetishist wet dream. And Hot War is a direct, direct reaction to that. I wanted to write a post-apocalyptic game that didn't present this, I mean, very de very deliberately, I make no bones about it, that didn't present this right-wing, gun-fetishist, macho view of the apocalypse. Uh, I wanted it to do it slightly differently. Point to those of that influence. Cthulhu is something else we can discuss. I understand you guys occasionally talk about the Cthulhu in this thing. Every now and then. Yeah. 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 Yes. A little bit. Let's get you back on that thread then, uh, Malcolm, and um, talk a little more about that. Okay, you need to ask specific questions, otherwise, this <laughs> rant. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on um, why the Call of Cthulhu game wasn't working for you in terms of mechanics? Because the mechanics do nothing to support what the game is about. I mean, it's. What would you say the game is about? Well, I mean, the game is about kind of the futile nature of man's resistance of a much higher and more powerful force. And the mechanics do nothing about that. You know, doing spot-hidden library use, all this kind of thing. It's like all this, you know, fiddling about. Spot-hidden, I think, is the most ill-used skill in any game ever. You know, the amount of games that I've... And this is purely coming from my personal viewpoint. I know many people out there thoroughly enjoy Call of Cthulhu and I'm not saying their fun is wrong. I'm not saying you shouldn't continue to have fun playing the game. However, I think it's crap. You know, 
It's a rubbish design game. I think there are. It can be improved vastly. I understand that seventh edition is doing interesting things. <laughs> good, good save, I have not spoken to the authors, <laughs> but uh, I understand good things are happening on that front. But it does nothing to support what the game is about. And there's all these claims that go on about, oh, but the mechanics just fade into the background and you don't even notice them. Right, fine. Why not just play free-form storytelling? Hmm. Why not just sit around and tell stories to each other? If you're going to have mechanics, you might as well make make them do something in the game to make the game more interesting, to push it off in directions and all the game, rather than have some kind of illusionistic, hand-wavy kind of. This is a, this is a, no, this is nothing original. Loads of people have said this before. You know, it's, you know, it doesn't just apply to Cthulhu. Cthulhu players, I am not having a go at you. Not all of you, at any rate. Uh, but it's that kind of when you get the kind of the pedantic keeper, like make a spot hidden roll, okay, fail, right? Make another spot hidden roll, pass this time, okay, I failed again, right? Someone else do it, right? They fail. An hour later, you're still poking about going, okay, I'm going to look in the desk drawers again. Do I find anything? No, right? This has been an hour. We're kind of wasting time here. Oh, well, you should have thought about looking in the teacup that was on the window shelf in the back room. And in that teacup, you'll find some oddly coloured saliva. Right. Okay. We've just wasted. Why didn't you just tell us that and get us moving on? You know, that kind of thing drove me nuts. Maybe this is just an experience of the GMing that I was kind of subjected to. Yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, a lot of that does sound like shit GMing. Oh, oh without uh, a doubt. But I don't think that the game mechanics, and this applies to so many other games, do anything to discourage that. Hmm. <laughs> I'm just watching Paul for a reaction. <laughs> I did. I did say this could turn into a rant. <laughs> no, no, that's what we had you on for. The trail of Cthulhu rather than Call of Cthulhu. There. I think Trail of Cthulhu is an improvement. Yep. I should probably stop talking at this point before everyone. No, no, no! You're you're, you're the guest. You're uh, that's that's what we got you on for. And, um... I guess I guess should respect his hosts. <laughs> oh God, no! Not on this show. Well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> we don't respect, respect each, each other. other. <laughs> or would you say that the people that um, are perhaps listening now that are saying, "Well, that doesn't reflect my experience with Call of Cthulhu. We play fantastic games, and it's really scary, and um, you know, we build up fantastic atmospheres, and." Um, you know, as you said, all the mechanics kind of get out of the way, and that's what we really like. What would you say the mechanism is by which they're creating that good experience? That they, you know, if they are having a good experience of it, which you know, if they attest that they are, then one can't argue with that. I think you've got a bunch of friends who know each other, who trust each other, aware of what each other likes, and are good at telling stories that they can all collaborate on. I think that's, and that we shouldn't take. I mean, I shouldn't take away from that. If you're having a fantastic time playing. And you're enjoying the stories you're creating. Brilliant. Push on. But I think in a lot of cases, whether my own experience or that I've heard about, and admittedly, this is a lot of anecdotal stuff, and my knowledge of Cthulhu playing is limited to my own experience, as it has to be. I think that's less to do with the game, and it's all to do with the people. But which is, I mean, like any gaming situation, if you can have, you've got to have good people you know, around you in order to make it work. Yeah. But I think that's I mean, that's more of a testament. It's not a testament to the way that the the game works. It's a testament to the people who are playing it. And would you say that um, 
Cold War and, and um, Cold, Cold City, you know, Cold City and Hot War get it the right around. Uh, in some way, a kind of response to those um, frustrations with Call of Cthulhu and a way of doing Call of Cthulhu potentially kind of running Call of Cthulhu games better. Because uh, I've certainly heard people say that. To a certain extent, uh, I mean, I think there is a sense that I want, having learned from a lot of other much better games, actually, than the stuff I've written, I would suggest, that, you know, the mechanics can be in the service of telling an interesting and fun and exciting and engaging story. And that's what, that's what the stuff in Cold City and Hot Water is there to do. It's there to make the story interesting, to be in the service of the players sitting down and to like, right, here is a bunch of stuff that will support what you want to do in telling an interesting story, creating an interesting situation, and having fun around the table. Now, admittedly, that might not work for everybody, but yeah, that was the kind of almost the, the reaction to it. Cool. I think you, 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 we've talked a bit just now about the kind of uh, influences on, on mechanics and so on, and the influences from games. But I mean, you've, you've obviously been influenced by a lot of other stuff as well. Um, yeah, I, I know from previous interviews and from talking to you that you know there's there's a lot of kind of science fiction you've drawn upon. But but I mean, also um, you're a historian by trade. Um, I mean, surely that must inform you know, particularly the fact that you've done two historical games. That must inform your gaming a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I said, I mean, it's the cold. The Cold War kind of fascinates me. Is this this period of, in many ways, I think, and there's a good segue here. Actually, I think the Cold War is a very Lovecraftian situation. Nice. Ordinary people on the ground, like you and me, were at the mercy of powers they simply could not comprehend and couldn't resist. The threat of nuclear warfare. Is something that is is essentially Lovecraftian. The threat is so awesome and it's so huge and it's so irresistible to the ordinary person on the street that you're almost in this Lovecraftian situation. I think. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. It's kind of, um, you know, rather than the, the things outside your 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 attic window, it's the, it's the mushroom cloud, it's the fear of uh, all that happening, which in the seventies we were kind of living with. Mm. Um, that kind of well, the seventies and eighties certainly. Mm. Yeah, well, I remember you, Malcolm, talking about uh, the effect that threads had on you, and and again, that seems to have. Um, you know, even though it's not a Lovecraftian horror, it's again that same kind of thing of you know cataclysmic apocalypse of you know forces that humans have held us before. I think so. I mean, I kind of my parents. I mean, I, growing up in the eighties, I remember seeing the. You know, the women's peace camps at Greenham Common and the, the protests at Molesworth and everything when American like cruise missiles were being brought into the country and everything. And not, I think it was about 10 at the time when Threads came out, not really understanding what it was about, but, but sensing that people were terrified of this, what I now recognise as the kind of the building rhetoric of the Reagan administration and the tension with the, the decrepit, ill old men who were running the Soviet Union. And my parents allowed me to watch Threads which is, I think, alongside Peter Watkins' War Game from 1965, they're the two most terrifying bits of cinema. And Threads, I think, especially, is incredibly visceral. You know, it's a horror film. It's just awful, this depiction of the post-nuclear environment. 
in such a stark and unflinching way, which is kind of like what Watkins did on a much smaller budget back in the 60s. But the BBC, of course, never aired it. They wouldn't allow it to be aired until 1984 because it was felt to be too frightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was only aired at the time Threads was being shown. Uh, so certainly films like that and kind of the sense of kind of growing up during the kind of latter stages of the Cold War has certainly informed a lot of the, the, the writing uh, that I've done in kind of games terms. Um, but I mean, the 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 horrors outside the the mundane, well, uh, not mundane as in you know, everyday, but mundane as in you know human horrors of nuclear war uh, that you've drawn upon do do often seem to have something of a Lovecraftian edge. I mean, did that come out of you playing Call of Cthulhu, or did that come out of you know reading Lovecraft himself? I think I think some of it comes to reading Lovecraft because uh, I mean you can see a lot of things about Lovecraft, but he was a a huge influence on the development of fantastic fiction uh, in the 20th century. Uh, so certainly, I mean, I've got my, I was looking at them just before this interview over on the bookshelf that's just over there off camera. Uh, I've got my battered old uh, four volume uh, collection of the complete HP Lovecraft almost. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the spines are all broken and pages are falling out and all that kind of thing. But, Oh, I think it would be it'd be massively disingenuous to deny that a lot of Lovecraft's writing works its way into game stuff I've written, whether it's directly or by influencing other writers. Well, you, what what aspect of, of Lovecraft's work is it there that kind of clicked with you? I think it's a sense of Lovecraft was Lovecraft in many ways was a bad writer. I don't think anyone denies that. He could be an absolutely awful writer. But he had a sense of this cosmic, overarching, overwhelming horror. He was very good at creating this sense of essentially we are powerless in the face of, I mean, just like we find ourselves powerless in the face of a lot of stuff that goes on in the world today, Lovecraft was very good at articulating that sense of powerlessness and and fear and just almost awe in the very in the most traditional sense of awe. Mm. Uh, what was kind of going on? Not kind of like you know, you know, oh, that was a great hot dog, as uh, you know, I mean, that was an awesome hot dog, you know, that kind of thing that uh, Eddie Izzard would would say. But uh, the sense of awe, at the the hugeness and importance of universal forces that you can't possibly do anything about. Um, but I mean, there's there's Kind of, I, I I see more than that in your game sometimes. Yeah, there's the, I, I I don't know quite how to explain it, but um, the the more kind of almost mundane, bestial aspects of Lovecraft's creations as well, you know, seem to come forth in, you know, in some of the creations, particularly in in Hot War. Ah, uh, yeah, and I mean, some of that I suppose is is almost a reaction to some of the stuff that Lovecraft... I mean, Lovecraft is an intensely problematic writer. Mm. Uh, he is, on one hand, a key, I think, a key, definitely a key figure in 20th century fantastic literature. He'd be daft to talk about the evolution of both horror and science fiction and fantastic fiction in general without talking about Lovecraft. But on the other hand, as, as many, many commentators have, have said at length and very frequently, Lovecraft's writing is hugely problematic and a lot of this boils down to his view of humanity and his view of, in particular, his view of the idea of race. 
Yeah. Mm. And that is intensely problematic. And I, I often think that doesn't get that's glossed over by you see discussions of Lovecraft online and within the context of playing Cthulhu. Sometimes that's kind of almost well, he was a man of his time and all that kind of thing. Yeah, that's an excuse I hear quite a lot. I'm not really sure I buy it. I mean, as a historian, how do you feel about that view? I think that's that's a that's an unsensical. Well, that isn't an excuse. You know, the idea of something being a man of his time that kind of implies that everyone was doing it. And you look at the era Lovecraft was writing in; that is, that's not true. You know, it is an era of an evolving. In America, we look at America. It's an era of the. The roots of the, the, the long civil rights movement, to take one example, so you have the origins of the you know, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in 1909 with you know, great American intellectual figures like W.E.B. Du Bois. So he, his time also involved ideals of civil rights and changes and ideas to you know, changing what was the status quo in many areas at the time. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, he was writing things like, you know, the horror at Red Hook at the same time as the Harlem Renaissance was going on. That is a that is a brilliant example of it. Uh, I mean, the Harlem Renaissance is, you know, a hugely important, not just for African Americans, I think, but in terms of the development of American culture, you know, literature, art, music, the Harlem Renaissance so is just hugely significant. Mm -hmm. So he has that going on at the same time Lovecraft is writing horror at Red Hook. Uh, his depictions within, like Herbert West, the animator, has a particularly abhorrent description of, and it encapsulates very well, I think, Lovecraft's attitude towards the an, the African American man. Yeah. The section in that with the the boxer whose name I forget, mm -hmm. West tries to bring back to life, and that is a hugely problematic stuff. I mean, the shadow over Innsmouth. You know, is you know, the shadow over Innsmouth might as well be called the shadow over Innsmouth colon a story about Howard's fear of race mixing. Yeah. You know, and that's been recognised for a lot, you know, a long time, and um, we um, that's I mean the problematic part of it. We all know now. That, I mean, race is is a culturally constructed phenomenon. It's it's bunk. Race doesn't exist. But Lovecraft fundamentally believed in this this these racial ideas about the inferiority of African-Americans and of other groups. I mean, he's, when you look at stories like the, the Call of Cthulhu, his depiction of uh, you know, ritual and sacrifice and all that kind of thing are couched in the exactly the same manner that the, the worst racists of the, the early to mid 20th century describe native peoples in the South Pacific and you know, in Africa, you know, whatever. Well, it's not just that, but it's the ritual that's broken up in the Louisiana, Louisiana backwoods. Um, you know, the, the, the implications in there are very much that, you know, because a lot of them were mixed race, this is what drove them to such degeneracy. Mm, yeah. And well, I mean, there's, I mean, Shadow of Innsmouth is, I mean, mm. his fear of, well, in air quotes, race mixing. Uh, and at the start, actually, I, I looked back at the start of the, the story tonight, and it says, bit where he talks about the, the inhabitants of Innsmouth being sent to concentration camps. Mm. Now, obviously, concentration camp, when he was writing in the early 30s, had a totally different context than what we would associate with a post-World War II but culture. still not a positive one. <laughs> it's still not a positive one, no. And it was, yeah. 
yeah. problematic, I find. Well, I find it interesting that, um, reflecting on that, it, it's those problematic themes, how good and how strong the stories must be for us to still give so much credit to Lovecraft and you know his work in the modern day with those themes in it. Because I think mo if most stories from that period, if they've got those kind of themes and, and very kind of um, racist um, elements in them, I don't think people would be reading them now. Well, but It's almost I, like I, in spite of that, they're so good that, that we read them anyway. Why? Are we... The power of these imagination is important, but we can look at films like uh, Birth of a Nation is the classic example. A horribly, horribly racist piece of cinema, but a formative and fundamental work in early cinema and still incredibly significant in what it did in terms of film. You can look at like Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will. You know, it's Nazi propaganda, but in terms of its technical, you know, cinematography and the way you know it's the way it's done, it's still an incredibly important piece of film. Hmm. It's possible, you know, I think it is, I mean it's, it's very easily possible for us to look at something. Well, like, he was a horrible racist in this regard, but yes, but the problem I have with it is a lot of time people want to sweep that under the carpet. Well, I, I think there's an even more disturbing aspect to it, um, which is, I mean, this may just be me, but I, I think one of the things that makes Lovecraft's work so effective is quite a horrible thing to contemplate, which is because he was so good at articulating the sense of horror that he felt because of his racism and couching it in other terms and making it universally accessible, even to people who aren't necessarily racist themselves, then it sort of conveys that, that horror of what it's like to be a racist in that situation and make it into a universal understandable sense and mm. that uh, yeah I, uh, that makes for some very potent and disturbing horror however you know morally repugnant it is yeah I, I don't think that, that kind of stuff is really caveat to this I have not read anywhere near the full number of Cthulhu uh, scenarios that have ever been published I think a lot of that you know this aspect of Lovecraft is yeah, it is kind of is swept aside, or it's made as you describe it there. I think it's it's made part of it without any real acknowledgement of why it's part of things. Maybe I mean one one thing that gives me hope is the fact that you know very few of the uh, the Lovecraft Circle writers and you know those that followed seemed you know with the exception of Robert E. Howard very few of them seemed to share Lovecraft's virulent mm. racism yeah. and as a result you know what a lot of the um, the raw ideas of, of Lovecraft's mythos you know survived and got enhanced by other writers that you know perhaps uh, the, the, this extension by people who didn't share his visceral hatred of other races, um, you know, has has perhaps shed some of that baggage as as you know the mythos has progressed. Well, I think so. I mean, you look at other authors who've kind of like worked within the mythos. Uh, certainly, their stuff is yeah very far from what what he was doing. Uh, but I mean, it's but I think it's useful to talk about you know mm. you know a lot of great art. I'm not sure if I would call Lovecraft great art, but you know, is is problematic. Or certainly in terms of literature, you look at, you know, Joseph Conrad, who was a far better writer than Lovecraft ever was. But 
you know, Conrad is open to accusations of similar accusations to, to Lovecraft of, of racism and all these kind of things, but it doesn't diminish how important Conrad is in terms of a literary figure in the, in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century. I think the same goes for Lovecraft, but I think you need to acknowledge what Love, you know, what Lovecraft is saying and not allow it to normalise, you know, within whether it's within games or kind of literature or anything like that. I don't know. I mean, there's a vague sense of this. I'm probably not making much sense of that. No, no, I, I, I know exactly what you mean, and it's it's something you know, it's a view I share very much. Um, I don't necessarily know what to do about it, but. Um, uh, I, I think it certainly needs to be acknowledged at the very least. Uh, more, more games that don't involve actual supernatural stuff. There's a, there's a thing that revolves around human horror. What so, you'd like to see more games that do? Uh, more, more games of Cthulhu actually that that is less to do with you know there isn't this explicable oh it's a supernatural going on and all that kind of thing. But it's I think. Cthulhu is, is, an int- is an interesting environment, it's an interesting space to work in. And having stuff that talks about kind of less of this Lovecraftian, you know, universal horror and focuses more on the, on the human side of things would be interesting. Mm. Maybe that, I, I have no idea if that would actually work in the game because I've not played Cthulhu for a long, long time. But. There's certainly a few supplements, um, one-shot adventures and one campaign I can think of where there's not what could be considered a mythos threat in there. There's there's plenty of supernatural threat, but it's just replacing one one splat of bad guy with another. But none that I can think of that are purely human. Mm. Well having having a Cthulhu game without any supernatural element, I think in my experience, which is limited, just really annoys people. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've sold all of us now. <laughs> uh, no, really, I mean my one experience of doing that and, it, it, and these were close friends, and it really annoyed them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I know the story you're talking about. If you want to share it, I, I'd love to hear oh, it again. Well, very, very briefly. It was actually, it was back years and years. I mean, we're talking about, God, it must be like 18, 19 years ago. It was, so White Dwarf back in the day used to do uh, some really good condensed, like short, concise Call of Cthulhu scenarios in them. And there was one from a really old copy of White Dwarf in the 80s called The Surrey Enigma. Mm. Where it's set in you know Surrey in the 1920s and 80s. so uh, the player characters we came up with were one was a one was a journalist the other one was the journalist's slightly louche artistic kind of Bloomsbury set kind of kind of mate and I can't remember who the third guy was I think it was just some kind of random hanger on uh, usually I think British Call of Cthulhu game in the 1920s been in the trenches and went a bit nuts and still carried all the Enfield around or something like that anyway. Uh, so they get sent down to the newspaper editor stories of you know witchcraft in Surrey. They're sent off during the summer to investigate this, and uh, so I decide like, this is an interesting start off. So uh, they're sitting outside a pub having fruitless search for anything. Everyone's going you know E-U-R. Uh, it's been a long time. They're in Surrey. Why are they speaking in like South West Country accents? Who knows? But I did that anyway because I didn't know any better. And uh, they're all going, ooh, R, by egg, all these kind of things, mixing every part of England into the <laughs> And uh, so they got nothing. And they're sitting outside this pub. And this is actually in the Surrey Enigma itself, but I kind of ran with it. And a car goes past. It says black, uh, I can't remember if it's a Bentley or a Rolls Royce or something, windows all up, and four guys sitting in it on a hot summer's day with black coats done up to here, black hats on, 
big beards and they go drive and immediately the players went we're going to follow them <laughs> so they jumped in their Bentley the Lucia artist guy's Bentley it was a kind of like Wolf Bernato Bentley boy kind of character and you go, off they go down there and they follow them down to this old mill in the woods and all that kind of thing and so they end up spying on them and they're in this room you know reading from some scrolls and doing strange things with like candles and all and they're like right okay there's definitely something going on here in the interim what I mean there was another bit of this where they investigated this kind of like folly Victorian folly on top of a hill there was this kind of tower and lights had been seen there at night and all that kind of thing and this was part of the witchcraft kind of rumors and uh, it turned out that the lights were, it was a fire that had been lit by these four children and a dog. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it took a few minutes before, hang on, that's the famous five. <laughs> yeah, they've been in the area as well. Uh, but anyway, so they end up, these guys go away and they break into this mill and oh, look at these scrolls and like these books with all these strange kind of things and all that kind of thing. And they steal all this stuff, but they get rumbled by these guys who come back. So there's a chase through the, the, the lanes of Surrey at about 20 miles an hour and a couple of old Bentleys. And one of the, the guys that's chasing them, the guys with the black coats and everything, leans out with a, with a Lee Enfield and starts shooting at the tires of the, the investigators, Bentley. So the kind of like the slightly addled trench guy uh, gets out his Webley revolver and starts shooting back and kills the driver, like totally dead eyes him while going down a... Their car veers off the road, they get out and just kill them. These guys are like, just gun them down or hit them with spades or whatever and all that kind of, hide their car underneath a, a haystack and hightail it back to London, never to mention this ever again. <laughs> But with all the stuff that the guys, so next day I had it, they're in the guy's apartment in Bayswater or something like that. Front page of the Times, Jewish academic slain, brutal murder in sunny countryside. <laughs> and there was, the interesting thing was there, there was no supernatural element because the most suspicious people at any Call of Cthulhu game are the investigators. They're the ones that go around messing around with strange books. They're always carrying guns and killing people for no apparent reason, asking strange questions, behaving in increasingly bizarre ways. Investigators are the most suspicious people in Call of Cthulhu, and all these guys were, were another bunch of investigators who were also there investigating these rumors of witchcraft. Huh. And it was the assumption inherent in cause the players knew we were playing Call of Cthulhu, they automatically yeah. assumed these guys are cultists, and they just lapsed into that mode. And there was nothing. There was never any supernatural going on at all. It was a false lead. But they were just another group of investigators who were investigating exactly the same thing. And it led <laughs> to essentially four guys getting killed and buried under a haystack. And Scotland, you know, Inspector Knacker of the Yard is looking for you know uh, for the perpetrators of this heinous crime. Uh, so it was an interesting kind of playing with people's assumptions about what should be in the game. And by God, they hated me at the end of it. <laughs> so annoyed. <laughs> but, I mean, but, but that is perfect. I mean, yeah, I've seen this time and again that, you know, you, you present a situation in the Call of Cthulhu scenario that is, you know, perhaps a bit weird, but um, you, you've got a bunch of ostensibly normal 
people getting involved with it, assuming it's an early uh, scenario in a campaign or a one-shot. And then if you've got a group of experienced Call of Cthulhu investigators, the chances are that at some point in the first half hour to an hour, they will slip into Cthulhu investigator mode. Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that, that involves you know, doing things like reaching into their brains and switching the moral switch off and, and things like that. And they, they, they will just become a bunch of paranoid um, you know, uh, uh, psychopaths, basically. Yeah, I mean, they go from kind of like you know, mild-mannered, you know, I don't know, you know, poets, journalists, and you know antiquarians, the people wandering around Bristol at eleven o'clock on a Saturday night, inquiring where they can buy a Lewis gun, <laughs> <laughs> which is you know, what seems to happen. Like where can we, we an elephant gun at, uh, at worst? We'll find one of those. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, on the, on the players' defence, I suppose as a player, we do want as, as a keeper, we do want the players to kind of. Um, you know, get engaged with the drama, and all the players have got to go on is what the GM gives them. Mm. So they're, they're kind of looking out. Oh, he's mentioned some some uh, some guys in the car. That must be where the action is, because you're not going to mention every car that goes by with some guys in it. So the ones you point out. I mean, if you mention, you know, there's a vase on the sideboard. Presumably, that vase must be important, or at least we'll go and have a look at it. Um, so. You know, in their defence, I suppose that um, whatever you sort of say, they're they're looking to bring some drama to. Well, no, I'm not saying they weren't justified in their annoyance. Uh, I think they were entirely justified. But you know, it wasn't it wasn't really bait and switch, because I never went and there's going to be some grim, horribly grimly monster. It was just that kind of assumption because you're playing Call of Cthulhu, there is going to be a supernatural explanation or a kind of. Yeah, I don't see the need to be annoyed at you. I mean, that sounds like a pretty fun game to be honest, but um. So as players, they were they were annoyed at you. Yeah, no, I could, but it was it was interesting to see the assumptions at work. I think yeah, that's yeah. that's the interesting part of it. Yeah, and I would yeah. Have, I would have probably done exactly the same thing. Hmm. Mm. That sounds like a good technique that I'm tempted to use now at the start of a longer campaign. If I run one of the likes of the MK Club, start off with that first that first session being right. So two days ago, it seemed like a good idea killing these bunch of suspicious people. Now you're on the run. What do you do? Hmm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Knacker of the yard is now after you. Yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, yeah. I think there, there's an awful lot to be fun, a lot of fun to be had in Call of Cthulhu, uh, in scenario writing and, and GMing with just completely fucking around with the players' expectations and perceptions. Uh, I think I mean yeah, I mean there is kind of interesting stuff, especially in kind of the default 1920s kind of thing. There's so many parts of like 1920s America that just don't really seem to be addressed. In Cthulhu, and I, I understand it's a game. You know, people aren't wanting to get too kind of like I'm not one of these history pedants who will sit in a film that has historical dubs going. Well, that's wrong, and that's wrong, and they wouldn't have worn those kind of like you know trousers, you know, in 1825 and all this kind of thing. I mean, I love so many historically inaccurate films. You know, the Great Escape is a great movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the only person in the Western world who likes Luc Besson's film about Jean d'Arc, The Messenger. Uh, it's a bombastic piece of nonsense and plays fast and loose with history. Well, I, I still love it. I think it's a great film. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's room to explore certain parts of 1920s American history, especially, uh, that are really touched upon uh, in the in the game as it as it stands. And again, I I'm sure someone could dig up uh, a scenario or a campaign pack or something that does address. Can, can you identify a couple of those that that you feel aren't touched upon? 
I think the conditions in the the Jim Crow South mm. in the nineteen the nineteen twenties. Now that isn't me saying that. I, you know, racist ideas were exclusive to the South in in the nineteen twenties, but you know the real you know, what happened in the Jim Crow South, the conditions that existed there, is something that seems to be slightly glossed over uh, in certain areas. I know there's a now what is it? It's in one of the campaign packs. There's a scenario called the plantation, yeah. and it's in one of the campaign packs. I can't remember which one, or a big scenario book. Yeah, and the name rings a bell, but I can't remember which one. One I can remember that that takes place within the South in this period, but doesn't doesn't even pay lip service to what's going on there. And I think there's there's some interesting stuff that could be could be done with that, mm. with the idea of you know if you if you went to the South in the nineteen twenties. There were strange rituals going on. There were sacrifices taking place, but this was stuff like the, you know, the, the KKK and various other racist organisations, you know, lynching and killing people, uh, in an effort to maintain, you know, white supremacy, uh, in the in the southern states. So these these very this kind of horrible sense, certainly for the African American community in the south, this horrible Lovecraftian sense of powerlessness. They were at the mercy of forces that they could not do anything about. Uh, is inherent within that that environment, and isn't, to my knowledge, really addressed within the game. Maybe you know, maybe it's too much to expect. Uh, but mm. you know, I think there's, there's avenues kind of open there for kind of looking at these kind of issues within the context of Call of Cthulhu, because it's, it's a very rich, you know, scene for you know, for fiction. Yeah. Well, I, I know you've you, you've uh, stated that you're not interested in writing any more games at the moment, but you know if we can haul you back into the gaming community for a little while, I'd love to collaborate with you on something like that. Oh well, you know, maybe we should we should meet up for a pint sometime and discuss that, Scott. We should. Um, now we've been going for about an hour and ten minutes, so I think it's probably time we wrapped up. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, just a reminder to everyone that you can find us on various social media. Um, we've got our own website, uh, blasphemoustomes.com, uh, where you can come along and comment on episodes and tell us what a shit job we're doing. Um, we've got uh, a Twitter feed. Um, uh, what are we on Twitter, the guys? J.E. Thank you. Uh, we're on Google+, uh, Facebook, and YouTube as the good friends of Jackson Elias. Um, and we're probably somewhere else, but I can't think where that might be. Tumblr, but nowhere, nowhere else worth mentioning, I think. Oh, yeah, no, no, we we stopped talking about Tumblr, because we haven't got anything there. <laughs> but I'm sure, Scott, you'll be able to pass on any death threats and vitriol that I've managed to get out of it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay, well, uh, nothing to do at this stage then, other than thank you, Malcolm, for uh, yeah, um, a, a, a very interesting discussion. No, no, well, thank you, and I'll, I'll now go back to my, uh, my gaming exile. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks very much. Right. Cheers, guys.